Nutrition on a plant-based diet is much better, more complete than it would be on a meaty diet. How is that possible? Because meat doesn't have vitamin C, it doesn't have fiber, it doesn't have complex carbohydrates. Meat and dairy too are kind of skewed nutrition. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us in more than 130 countries around the world and healthy cities coast to coast in the U.S. Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina, Kansas City, Missouri, and Honolulu, Hawaii. Is there a veg fest in Honolulu? Anywhere in Hawaii? Because I would love to speak at that thing. We appreciate you all helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode three of season five, number 302 overall. And it also happens to be our very first exam room live Q&A of the year. So we are about to welcome Dr. Neil Barnard back to the show as we open up the doctor's mailbag. New year, new you. For a lot of people, that means a new diet as well. And millions are giving this whole vegan thing a whirl. And that leads us to today's top question. How will you know if you're getting all of the vitamins and nutrients that you need if you're vegan? Is it even possible when you're not eating meat and you're not drinking milk? Do you need some supplements? Well, we are going to help out a viewer who was wondering that very thing, and I'm guessing that they are not the only one. Some other good questions in the doctor's mailbag today for Dr. Barnard as well. We hear from a cheese-aholic, a cheddar-aholic, wondering what is the best way to kick that cheese habit. Someone else wondering how long it takes for your taste buds to change, and what should eating the rainbow look like? Is it more green than anything? And also an important question about whether older vegans need a calcium supplement. All those questions and many, many more. But before we open up the doctor's mailbag, I wanted to let you know that today's episode of The Exam Room is being brought to you by the Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund. Greg Ryder's love for animals was unrivaled, and today... The fund in his honor is dedicated to supporting organizations like the Physicians Committee that share that same passion, that same love that he had through animal rescue efforts and by promoting a vegan lifestyle and even wildlife conservation. Visit them online, GregoryRiderFund.org. That's GregoryRider, R-E-I-T-E-R, Fund.org, where you can learn more about Greg's incredible story, as well as the animal issues that they are currently working on. And while you're there, you can also subscribe to their newsletter. And a link to their website can be found right now in the show notes. All right. It is time now to open up the doctor's mailbag for the first time in 2022. And for that, we welcome Dr. Barnard to the show. And a quick note, he is out and about traveling in the world. So his sound may be just a little bit different today. My friend, happy new year. Happy new year to you, Chuck. Great to see you. The pleasure is all mine, and it is 2022, and there is much work to be done. So are you ready to dive into that doctor's mailbag and get some help for the good people? Let's jump in. All right. Our first question comes to us from Sam, and Sam is the exam roomie who is now going vegan in this new year. Sam wants to know, how can I make sure that I'm getting all of the vitamins and nutrients I need on a plant-based diet? Sam says that they're iffy about taking meat and milk out of their diet. 
Wonderful question. I'm sure a lot of other people might have the same kind of question. Um, the simple answer is that nutrition on a plant-based diet is much better, more complete than it would be on a meaty diet. How is that possible? Because meat doesn't have vitamin C. It doesn't have fiber. It doesn't have complex carbohydrates. Meat and dairy too are kind of skewed nutrition. When they're gone from the diet and you bring in their place, vegetables, fruits, beans, whole grains, your nutritional uh, content of your diet is dramatically better. More fiber, more vitamin C, more antioxidants, and so forth. So overall nutrition is better. How do we know this? There is a test, kind of an examination called uh, the Alternate Healthy Eating Index, where you rate different kinds of meal plans for their healthfulness. And vegan diets are dramatically better than a typical American omnivorous diet. So your nutrition is going to improve. That said, um, specific issues Protein, not an issue. If you have just any normal variety, vegetables, fruits, beans, grains, you're going to get out of the protein. Calcium, green leafy vegetables, best source, build them into your routine. And do take a vitamin B12 supplement. That's the one thing that's missing from plants. You take that, you are set. All right. So you just mentioned a lot of foods and that brings us to the next question. A good one from Maurice. And I've actually wondered this myself. Uh, she wonders in terms of color and eating the rainbow, should my plate be half green and various colors for the rest? So what is the ratio of greens to everything else? Oh, great. Uh, great question. Um, first of all, I'm glad you're um, emphasizing greens because greens bring you not just calcium and iron in its best form, but they bring you lots of antioxidants and cancer fighters. So it's good to emphasize them. But within the vegetable group, how about having something green and maybe something orange at the same time? Instead of the idea of a vegetable, you can have two. So if the carrots or sweet potatoes bring you the orange and the green comes from broccoli or Brussels sprouts or spinach, you're going to get a complement of nutrients from both. So there isn't one exact ratio. Um, it could be different from different for different people and from one day to the next, and that's okay. It's that variety of plant-based foods that gives you really the best nutrition. This is a really good question that comes to us from Tim. Uh, wrote in just yesterday, as a matter of fact, wanted to get a jump on the show. And Tim wrote, uh, I saw your post, Dr. Barnard, on Facebook about Richard Lakey's passing. And you said that he told you once that humans, quote, are not carnivores and have never been carnivores. He wants to know, is this true? And then how and when did meat become part of the human diet? Yes. Um, Richard Lakey uh, passed away the other day. He has he was uh, really a groundbreaking paleoanthropologist who did a lot of work on human evolution in general, but commented a lot on the evolution of diet. And uh, I had the honor to speak with him and, and to interview him for my very first nutrition book, which is called The Power of Your Plate. And in that book, we actually started with Jane Goodall, who talked about chimpanzees. What do chimpanzees eat? They're our closest living relatives. And what you discover is they don't eat cheeseburgers. They're not having a glass of milk or yogurt at all. Fruit is by far their favorite thing, followed by vegetables and really not much of any meat, or maybe not at all for some of them, no dairy, whatever. Um, and so if you then look at the other great apes, like gorillas and orangutans and bonobos, it's kind of the same pattern. They're not big meat eaters. They're not dairy consumers. They're not having fried eggs for breakfast. They're 
uh, either mostly or entirely herbivorous. So then the question for, that Richard Leakey looked at is, so how did human beings start to, well, not evolve, but to kind of drift away from a, either a primarily or exclusively herbivorous diet to one that's varied so much and for some people includes a fair amount of meat. And his answer uh, came from work that he had done and that um, other researchers had done where they started to notice that they would find in some uh, archeological digs, they would find bones, uh, bones of an antelope or some other animal that had been eaten. And the bones seemed to have uh, marks on them indicating that somebody had taken a knife and cut them away. And they started putting together the, the puzzle pieces and I'm gonna make a really long story very short. What they felt had happened was that human beings began eating, or those human beings who did start eating meat, it really began as scavenging, meaning you didn't have to be a good shot, you didn't have to kill anybody, but if a lion would kill an antelope and leave a lot of it, human beings would take the remaining carcass and that would be their lunch. Um, but that was really only possible when we had the tools to remove the meat from the bones. And so that was the idea that meat eating began as scavenging. And then eventually people developed arrowheads and spears and started hunting. But that was not something that occurred until the advent of the Stone Age. Our bodies are pre-Stone Age bodies. And so that's why Richard Leakey says, look, we are not dogs, cats, carnivores by nature. We are great apes. And meat eating, um, certainly to the extent that it is at today, is not something that's natural to human beings. That is really interesting. And then when you think about how long the earth has been around, you're you're actually talking about a relatively short period of time then that human beings will have been eating meat. That kind of puts things into perspective a little bit. Well, we have the digestive tract of an herbivore. So you put meat into it and your risk for colon cancer goes up. We have the coronary arteries of an herbivore. We're on a meaty diet and we're asking for heart disease. Um, so uh, we are designed to flourish on a plant-based diet. And that's why you see a person who might've had a father and a grandfather and great-grandfather who had gotten into the meat habit that people have been in in this most recent chapter of, our, our, of human history. But when we deviate from that back to a more natural diet for us, which is an herbivorous diet, people live longer, they live better, they get their waistline back, their coronary arteries clean out. Um, so it's uh, it, the plant-based diet is the natural diet for humanity. Man, what a fascinating conversation. And people are tuned in from all over the world for this one today. Deborah is watching us in Florida and Tofu Tuesday checking in as well. Joanne is watching in Connecticut. Amy, all the way over in Thailand. Mary is in Ecuador. Thank you all so very much for being here with us, ringing in 2022 in the healthiest way possible. That's awesome. Um, Dr. Bernard, let's go back to the supplement discussion we were having a little bit earlier in the show. Leslie writes in, and she is a brave soul admitting uh, that she's a little bit up there. She says, should older women take a calcium supplement to avoid osteoporosis? My doctor says that a plant-based diet is not good for a woman of my age. Okay. First of all, um, a supplement really should be taken if your doctor says you should, you should be taking it. Um, otherwise, no. Um, and why am I saying that? Because you want calcium rich foods anyway. So broccoli and all the green vegetables, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, kale, collards, they will bring you calcium in a natural way. And they shouldn't just be an afterthought that you have on Wednesdays. Uh, they should be part of your daily routine. And the reason that I emphasize that is a calcium supplement brings you calcium. 
Green leafy vegetables bring you calcium and they bring you iron in its most healthful form and all of uh, the other nutrients that you'll find in there, some of which help you find, fight cancer, some of which are related to cognitive health. So a supplement, a calcium supplement isn't a substitute for those things. Green leafy vegetables, bring them in big. Uh, bring in the bean group right behind them. They're going to add some more calcium. So you can see where I'm going with this. There's calcium in natural foods. This will surprise you. Even mineral water. What's mineral water? That's the spring water that comes to you in a bottle. What minerals gave them gave it its name? Calcium is one of them. Um, so uh, all of these are natural sources. That said, let's say you had a hip fracture and your doctor has you on a treatment for it, and part of the treatment is calcium, follow your doctor's advice. Um, but that's that's not general advice for people who aren't in that situation. All right, uh, question here from Mommy Vegan Nummy, 1159. She's just getting a jump on things today. Uh, she is uh, from Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh Steeler Nation, so, uh so long, Ben Roethlisberger. But uh, anyway, uh, she is wondering, Dr. Barnard, speaking about calcium, let's pivot over to its cousin in a lot of people's eyes, vitamin D. And she is wondering specifically, do kids need to take a vitamin D supplement during the winter time? Probably yes. Um, great question. Uh, vitamin D is needed to help your body absorb calcium. Uh, you can have calcium in your diet, but if you don't have vitamin D, it doesn't get from your digestive tract into your bloodstream. Um, and vitamin D normally comes from sunlight on your skin. And so when we humans had the good judgment to be in equatorial Africa, which is where we began our sojourn on earth, um, we got all the vitamin D we would ever need. But some of our families had the bad judgment to go over the Bering Strait into places like Fargo, where I grew up. And about this time of the year, there is no sunlight there that you're going to have access. You're not going to be stripping off your shirt and soaking up the, the UV rays. Um, so a supplement makes sense. Um, don't overdo it. Um, the, there, you'll see vitamin D um, in things like Flintstones vitamins. And you can talk to your doctor about that as well. But, but not just kids, but adults can benefit from a vitamin D supplement too. For adults, the dose is around 2,000 IUs a day, something like that. Don't, I wouldn't go over that amount. Is, is it dangerous? We have somebody wondering, is it dangerous to exceed that? And a lot of people have a difficult time finding supplements that aren't way over the recommended amount. Yeah, it can be. Um, there are certain vitamins, some vitamins, no big deal. If you overdo it, the vitamin C, vitamin B, B12, prop, the best uh, evidence is probably no big deal. But for vitamin D, that's one of the ones where if you overdo it, it can be harmful to you. So um, the, the, the amount that doctors are often using now is about 2,000 international units a day for adults. Um, that, it, that itself is over the recommended daily allowance, but within the safe range. But going beyond that, I wouldn't do it unless, unless your doctor had a specific um, indication for doing that in your case. All right, let's take a question here from Myra at 12.15. She's got six thank you emojis, so she really wants to get this one on the air. She's wondering uh, flat out, as a lot of people are this time of year, how do you start a vegan diet, Dr. Barnard? There's a uh, technique that we have evolved um, that we use at the Barnard Medical Center, and we use it in every research study that we've ever done. And here's, here's what it is. Um, so let's say you know why you want to do it. You want to lose weight or you want to reverse heart disease or you want to get off your diabetes medications, whatever that is. Your motivation says, starting today, count out seven days. This is your get ready phase. During the seven days, I would like you to take a piece of paper and think up breakfasts and lunches and dinners 
that happen to have no animal products in them that you would actually like. That's the whole assignment. That's all you're going to do for the first seven days. You're not going to take anything out. You're not going vegetarian or vegan yet. You're just making your list. After seven days, you will have thought of things that you can have for breakfast, such as, let's see, every day I have cornflakes with milk. Milk's not vegan. Um, I can use almond milk, soy milk, rice milk, hemp milk, fine. If you haven't tasted them, go to the store, get them. you got seven days to figure out the ones you like. Um, veggie sausage instead of pork sausage. Never tried it? you got seven days. Go to the store, try it. Uh, your favorite restaurant's an Italian place where you have ground beef sauce on your spaghetti. you got seven days to find a better topping for your spaghetti. And, of course, the Italian restaurant has it. They call it marinara sauce or arrabbiata sauce or whatever the case may be. All right. At the end of seven days, you got your list. You got breakfasts, you got lunches, you got dinners. Because you looked on the PCRM.org website, you're on the Kickstart, uh, our Kickstart app, app 21 Day uh, Vegan Kickstart. Now, step two is 21 days. Take your list that you made during the seven days and now eat those foods. That's it. During the 21 days, no animal products at all. You're going to be 100% vegan. But it's easy because it's only 21 days. And also, you've already made your list and you know which foods you like. At the end of 21 days, you will discover that physically you are healthier. The weight loss has started. Your blood sugar is coming down. Your energy is better. Your digestion is finally making sense. And your tastes are changing, too. So you discover that you haven't had chicken wings in three weeks and you don't really miss them. So have at it. Seven days to get ready. 21 days as a test drive. It'll change your life. Taste buds. Perfect segue to a question from Elena, who was wondering, why do they change? And does it take the full 21 days for them to change? Everybody's a little bit different, but our taste buds do reset. You probably experienced this with salt. Um, if you are used to a certain kind of uh, salt content to foods you eat and it's not there, foods taste really bland and you'll want to add it uh, at the table. Um, this, but it's not just salt. Your taste buds get used to a certain saltiness and they want to stay there. If something's too high, you notice it. If it's too low, you notice it. Um, that could be adjusted in about 14 days, something like that. You also have a kind of a set point for fat. Researchers in Philadelphia discovered this about 30 years ago. If you reduce the fat intake, the fat content of a meal too low, people will notice it. If you increase it too much, people notice it too. So what's too little or too much? What you've been eating lately. So let's say we go on a diet that has no animal fat in it at all, and we keep oils really low, beans and rice with vegetables on the side. Um, if, you're on, if you have been on a fatty diet, you'll know that it feels pretty low in fat. After about two weeks or thereabouts, you will be used to that. And then your roommate or family member comes home with something, you know, really greasy and fatty, and you just don't want it anymore. Um, so about roughly two weeks for some people, maybe a week longer than that, that'll retest you, uh, reset your taste buds. You know, and, and that worked for uh, sweets with me, actually, uh, just over the holidays. A lot of people like to toast. I'm not much of a drinker, so I didn't have alcohol, but there was grape juice. So I had a sip of that and I wanted to spit it out. I was like, this is the sweetest like thing I've ever tasted. It was sugar overload. And then I started to laugh thinking about how much I used to enjoy that back in the day. And I just couldn't get enough of that sweet taste. But now it was just way, way, way too much. 
The short-term time frame is a really good thing to think about for the reasons you mentioned. We talked about salt, we talked about fat, um, sweetness, yes. But any kind of habit, let's say a person is trying to just quit smoking. Don't think about the fact that 50 years from now, I won't be able to light up. Forget it. Just focus on the next two weeks, three weeks, get through that period. Let's say alcohol is an issue for you or you're having a lot of junk food. Don't decide I'm never going to have it forever. Just say for these two weeks, gone or this week or, or this day. You know, Alcoholics Anonymous is one day at a time. A short term focus gives you the power to stick with it. All right, man. So we're talking habits here. This is a good one from Amy. She is a cheddaraholic, and she wants to know what is the best way to kick the cheese habit? A couple of things. First of all, you are not alone. When we do research studies and we use vegan diets, cheese is the one thing that, man, that's the, the, the thing that people kind of crave on, on an ongoing basis. First thing is you can replace it. Um, you will see there are vegan cheeses out there. Be careful about them. Most of them are pretty fatty. And look at the label. If the saturated fat content is more than, you know, is very much more than zero, um, it's going to increase your cholesterol level. Uh, it won't be as bad as animal-derived cheeses, but be careful. Some of the vegan cheeses are made with coconut oil, and they're just really not, not healthy for you. A better replacement is nutritional yeast. Yes, trust me, sprinkle it on your pizza. Um, stir it into sauces and it adds a really nice cheesy uh, flavor. And so that'll be a good re replacement. But I got to tell you the truth. For many people, the best way to get away from cheese is to understand just a couple of, of facts about where it comes from. And Chuck, if you don't mind, uh, I'm just going to lay out something that has been very meaningful to the people in our research studies. Um, I had a participant come in, say, the other day. Uh, I, I, I'm sorry. A participant came in one day in the course of one of our research studies, and she had been following a vegan diet, but cheese had kind of been her thing. And she had mentioned that she had learned where cheese comes from. What does that mean? That means that on every dairy farm in America, the cows are artificially inseminated every year. A farmhand sticks his left hand up the cow's rectum, um, and through the rectal wall, you can feel the uterus. You clutch the uterus with your left hand, with your right hand, the farmhand takes what looks like a knitting needle and he jams it through her cervix and inserts semen taken from a bull. That gets the cow pregnant. And why do you do that? Because cows don't make milk until they've been impregnated and give birth. That's true of all. That's, this is mammalian biology 101. Nine months later, her gestation is finished. She gives birth to a baby. Okay. Um, she didn't ask to be impregnated. She didn't particularly want this, but she's not a volunteer and neither is the bull they took the semen from. And this is the way dairy, what, this is the way dairy farmers make milk. Okay, when the baby is born, all the farmhands gather around and because there's nothing cuter than a newborn calf. They're all just bones and elbows and, and the calf looks up at mom and mom looks down at the baby and she starts to clean him up. And, and the mother-infant bond is this beautiful thing. And that's when the farmhands all look at each other and they go, okay, now's the time. What that means is we don't want the calf to have the milk. We want it. We want that milk for us, not for the calf. And so they have an implement called a wheelbarrow. They pick up the calf by the chest and put the calf in the wheelbarrow and take her away. Now the mother infant bond says, wait a minute. The mom follows the wheelbarrow and says, that's my baby you're taking away. And then a gate will slam in her face and she will stand there 
and cry for her baby. And, and the baby is put in a isolation hutch and the baby will cry for mom. Every glass of milk that you ever had in your life came from exactly this process. If the baby is male, the male will be killed for veal because some people got the bizarre uh, habit of liking the rubbery taste of freshly slaughtered male calves muscle tissue. It's veal. If the calf is female, she will grow up to be about a year in isolation, at which point somebody will stick their hand up her backside. She will be impregnated for the first time. This continues about four times. And once a cow who normally lives to be about 20, once they reach about four, their milk production is not quite as vigorous as it was when they were two and three. So they are trucked off to the slaughterhouse and turned into low-grade hamburger. Um, yes, every dairy cow is killed for meat, um, regardless of where they are in the world. And um, anyway, that's just the way it is. So the dairy industry is a meat industry. It just takes a long time for them to get there. And every year they're impregnated, their calves are taken away. They go through that and then they're hung up by the legs and killed. Why am I telling you this kind of creepy thing? Because I want you to look at a grilled cheese sandwich and remember what put it on your plate. And if you think about that, you're never going to eat cheese again. Uh, let's stick kind of along the dairy lines and take a question from Ginny. You talk about dairy, you're talking about calcium. Uh, a lot of people are, are actually wondering this one. Uh, Ginny is saying that my doctor told me that calcium is not absorbed well in the presence of iron. So is it true that for eating greens like kale and spinach and, and things like that, are they good calcium sources or is there kind of a, a block there? It's a great, it's a great question. Um, but the absorption has been studied. What you do is you bring in research volunteers and you actually measure the absorption and uh, collards really high absorption, both calcium and also iron, um, kale high, broccoli high, Brussels sprouts really high. So despite the fact that they have both of calcium and iron, you will absorb both nutrients. And that's kind of the source that mother nature was hoping we would choose. Uh, Myra, watching in California, DR and Meg are in Canada, Judy's in Oregon, Stacy's in Chicago. Again, they're watching from all over today, and I love it. Everybody's getting healthy in this new year. Um, let's switch gears here and take a question from Tyrone, Dr. Barnard. And this one is top of mind for so many right now uh, with the pandemic being in the state that it is. Tyrone is wondering whether vegans are less susceptible to the Omicron variant. Uh, he says that he has been vaccinated and boosted as well? Um, very likely less susceptible to severe illness. Um, researchers have looked at a, a, couple, a couple things. For, for, first of all, they've looked at who gets severe COVID. Uh, this was before o Omicron. Um, who gets severe COVID and who doesn't? Who needs hospitalization? Who doesn't? And <clears throat> for a long time, there was good reason to believe that people following plant-based diets would do better uh, because people who had thinner waistlines, healthier blood sugars, um, healthier blood pressures were less likely to succumb to, to COVID and less likely to end up in, in ICU. Um, but then in the middle of middle to later part of last year, 2020, we got two studies that confirmed exactly that, that people following plant-based diets were at less risk of severe COVID. Um, and people who did worse were those on high protein diets, the keto diets. They did, they were more susceptible to, to severe COVID. And then the latest twist in this is researchers have done studies on vaccine efficacy. Let's say you go to the, the, the pharmacy, you get a COVID vaccine, and that vaccine will then cause your body to make antibodies that hopefully protect you against 
whatever the vaccine was for, whether it's a flu shot or COVID vaccine or whatever. Researchers found that if your waistline is healthy, in other words, if you're not overweight, you have a better response to the vaccine, a better antibody response. If your blood pressure is down, if your lipids are down, you have a better response as well. And also if you're a non-smoker, you have a better response. So what does all this mean? Um, it means that if you're on a plant-based diet, you are less likely to get severe COVID. And if you get vaccinated, it's more likely to work better. Having said that, none of this is a magic bullet. You can be vaccinated, you can be vegan, you can be having nothing but organic stuff. That virus can still come and find you. So we want to pull out the stops. We want to take care of ourselves and our families and be as healthy as we can be. Uh, just yesterday, I was having a conversation uh, about this um, with Dr. Dean Ornish. Uh, it was a real pleasure to have him on the show. So a follow-up here from uh, Anum, uh, Anupam rather, at 1216. What diet should one maintain for heart blockage? Dr. Ornish, 30 years ago, did a pioneering study that, whose findings were published in Lancet. What did he do? Plant-based diet. Get away from the animal products completely. Keep oils really low. That's the diet you want. Don't forget to lace up your sneakers, manage stress, and if you smoke, now's the time to quit. That's the program that in, in Ornish's uh, research uh, caused a very predictable reversal of artery narrowings, meaning you get an angiogram that shows you the little trickle of blood that gets through the arteries. You start following this diet, those arteries just start opening up again. Now the body will heal, and that's, that's the approach. No animal products, lots of vegetables, fruits, beans, whole grains. Don't forget your vitamin B12. Keep oils really low. That's it. All right. We have time for a few more. So keep on posting yours in the comment or the chat. Send them to me on Twitter or Instagram at Chuck Carroll WLC. Uh, Dr. Barnard, uh, let's take a question here from Vita uh, 1218. She writes that uh, she and her husband been uh, vegan now for eight months, says that her husband has lost 14 kilograms, uh, but all of his muscle weight. Um, she's wondering what can he do to get some more energy and build up some more bulk, maybe get some of those muscles back. Okay. Um, well, first of all, congratulations. Um, you've been doing a plant-based diet for several months now, and you've had big weight loss. Um, when we do DEXA scans, this is a scan where we look at body composition. Um, you're going to lose fat, first of all. And when the fat is gone, um, your body is smaller. Um, lean mass, some, when you lose fat, some of the lean that has been supporting it will go away, but your ratio of muscles to fat is going to be much higher than it was before. Um, and you don't need to eat in a special way to, to make sure that your muscle mass stays around. Um, but the key may be iron. Nope. I don't mean iron in food. I mean, iron that you're pressing. I'm talking about going to the gym. Uh, what, what really determines your muscle size is the extent that muscles are used. Um, so um, a weight-bearing program uh, will preserve your muscles. And that can be simple things like push-ups and sit-ups and squats and those kinds of things. But it can also be an organized program at the gym. You'll get plenty of protein from beans and grains and vegetables to maintain your muscle mass. And uh, you put all that together and you got a healthier body.
Yeah, and and everything that you just said was spot on. Um, I can speak to this one from experience myself. You know, when I was over four hundred and twenty pounds, I was super strong, like pull pull a semi tractor trailer kind of strong, um, just because I was carrying around all of that immense body weight. And I thought that when I started to lose weight, like it was imperative that I maintained every single shred of muscle that I had in my body. But I found that to be impossible. And then when I kind of reached a state that her husband is in right now, I was like, well, ah, gosh, I, I really want to put some more on. Dr. Barnard, I did exactly what you started, what, what you were mentioning, you know, just started to do pushups. Every time I went to the bathroom, I would drop down, I would do 10 pushups. You go to the bathroom a number of times during the day, you'd be surprised what wonders that does for your pecs and your arms and, and keeps you, you know, nice and toned. So it's, it's really not all that bad. And the bodybuilders that we have had on the program recently as as well will tell you that you absolutely do not need to eat meat in order to get enough protein to maintain those muscles. So uh, you are on the right track and you can keep it simple. Um, time for a couple of more here. Uh, let's take one from Pam. Oh boy, this is a good one. Uh, is vegan junk food any healthier than regular junk food? Well, vegan junk food is regular junk food. If you look at a, a typical <laughs> meat eater and you say, tell me about the junk food that you're eating, they're eating potato chips. And they're having chocolate and they're having sodas and all that stuff. If that person who is a meat eater, they have pizza and they're having burgers and chicken wings and what do you call junk food, like a candy and sodas and potato chips. If that person makes a decision to go vegan and if all they do is to get the meat and the dairy and the eggs out of their life, but the junk food is still there. You know what? They've done a really good thing. That's a huge change and they should be applauded for that. So now that that's gone and you've replaced the meat with beans and grains and vegetables, but there's still some potato chips and you know the occasional soda in your diet, you might think, hmm, maybe I should start cleaning that stuff out too. Sure you should. You've already done a great thing by getting away from the animal products and now you start cleaning up what's, what's left. Um, so the, the reason I'm emphasizing this is you'll hear people talk about vegan junk food. Well, Meat eaters eat a heck of a lot of junk food, too. Um, so uh, that's often a, a, a good choice to make to start cleaning that part up, too. All right. And uh, final question for today comes from Mike. Mike writes, uh, I have been vegan now for five years. What would happen to my gut if I were to eat meat? There is a researcher named Stephen O'Keefe uh, in Pittsburgh, University of Pittsburgh. He brought in research participants for a study. Half of the participants were men in Pittsburgh. The other half were men in rural South Africa. The men in Pittsburgh ate chicken wings and cheeseburgers and pizza. The men in South Africa ate a lot of beans and root vegetables and a mostly plant-based diet. What he asked the participants to do was to trade diets. So the men in Pittsburgh started eating a mostly plant-based diet. But the people in rural South, South Africa started eating, at Dr. O'Keefe's request, chicken wings and cheese and American-type foods. What happened? Their gut microbiomes started changing. In other words, it's sort of like if you're trying to grow roses and you've been successful for a long period of time, your roses are blooming, everything's great. This is like your healthy gut microbiome. Now, instead of rose soil for your rose garden, you're going to put down cactus soil 
It's all sandy and so forth. And suddenly, instead of your roses growing, well, other crops start coming up. That's what's happening in your gut. When you change what you eat, your gut microbiome will change and unhealthy gut bacteria will start to flourish. And that change will occur within 14 days. That's right. It'll continue to worsen after that. But in O'Keefe's study, within 14 days, you could see very substantial differences within the gut. What that means is if you've been on a really healthy diet, you can throw it all away by adopting a typical American diet. And it happens fast. Um, your waistline will start growing for many people. Their cholesterol levels will go up right away. It is amazing how quickly you can poison yourself with American food. A couple of things that I want to share as we wrap up uh, here. Stacy also on the push-up plan, says that uh, they do 10 push-ups every hour at work, usually equals about 100 push-ups a day. So I'd imagine Stacy's nice and strong. Um, DJ says that uh, they've been vegan now for three months, uh, SOS, and says that this is the best that they have felt in their entire life. So DJ, happy for you, my man. And Dr. Barnard, if you would indulge me, there is one more question. This one just caught my eye. It is uh, from Naveen at 1239, and it is Naveen's birthday, so I really want to get to this. They are wondering about omega-3s and wondering if a tablespoon of flaxseed is enough to meet the daily requirements for omega-3s. Sure, it's fine. Um, you, can, you can do omega-3s that way if you want to. Um, you'll also find, and this will surprise you a little bit, let's say you eat a lot of green leafy vegetables. They don't have that much fat in them, but the fat they have is proportionally quite high in omega-3 too. So you'll find omega-3 in surprising places. If you want to go crazy with them, you can go online and you'll find vegan omega-3 supplements with EPA and DHA, just like what's in the fish oil, but without the fish. Um, it's there if you want it. Just like the fish oil, but without the fish. Well put. Oh boy. Let's go ahead and close up that doctor's mailbag for today. Uh, Dr. Barnard, the, what, what a way to start 2022. And um, as we wrap up our first live show of the year, I want to say a huge thank you to the Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund for their continued support in the new year of the exam room live and the physicians committee. Uh, that is support that is helping to raise our health IQs and making this very episode right here possible. The Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund supports organizations just like the Physicians Committee that carry on Greg's love for animals, and they do that by promoting plant-based health and working to end animal abuse, two things that we talked about here today. And you can visit them online right now at the uh, Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund online, gregoryryderfund.org. That's Gregory Ryder, spelled R-E-I-T-E-R, fund.org. While you're there, sign up for their newsletter and keep up to date with everything that they have going on. Dr. Barnard, I want to thank you uh, again so very much for taking the time to join us here today. I look forward to doing this with you again very soon. Right back at you. And uh, let me also say, Chuck, congratulations on everything that you achieved during 2021. It's amazing to see you top in the charts, not just in the US, but in so many countries around the world. And we're only gonna build from here. So congratulations to you, Chuck. It's great working with you and look forward to a fabulous year coming up. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, my friend. Uh, yeah, 79 countries, uh, number one nutrition podcast in 79 different countries last year. So uh, hope to hit uh, somewhere in the 80s, maybe 90s, even 100 uh, this year. So let's keep this message going. Don't forget that you can join us for The Exam Room Live every Wednesday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. Join us on Facebook and on YouTube. 
the experts like Dr. Barnard, they are there to answer your questions in real time. And we always get to as many as we can. And never once has there ever been an episode where we don't learn something new. I'm telling you, I have done hundreds of these shows, but the health IQ always climbs just a little bit higher. And I suspect it will be the same for you. So the live shows every Wednesday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on YouTube and on Facebook. I do hope to see you there, but if you cannot join us live, no problem. You can always send me your questions ahead of time as well. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Chuck Carroll WLC. Now, they have been doing some exciting research in France recently. Researchers there are studying ways to prevent and treat cognitive decline as we get older. And wouldn't you know, what they found is that food plays an important role in keeping your brain functioning at a high level as the years roll by. Let's head now to the exam room news desk for details. Plant-based foods such as mushrooms and fruit reduce the risk of cognitive decline, according to a study published in the Journal of Molecular Nutrition and Food Research. The 12-year-long study follows older adults who did not have dementia when the research began. A comparison of results from cognitive function tests and the risk of cognitive decline was then done with the consumption of metabolites from various foods and microbiome samples. Results show metabolites from cocoa, mushrooms, and coffee help to prevent cognitive decline, and the metabolism of nutrients from fruit and green tea had a similar shielding effect. I remember doing a show with Maggie Neola, who is one of our dietitians here at the Physicians Committee. And this show was about mushrooms being good for the mind. And this study is certainly just another great example of that. And I find it so easy to throw mushrooms in a lot of different things. Like I always have frozen mixed mushrooms in the freezer. All I do is I grab a handful and throw them in whatever it is that I'm cooking. And I reap the benefits, both in health and in flavor. And if you would like to delve a little bit deeper into this cognitive function study, you can find a link to do that right now in the episode notes. And if you feel indeed like you have raised your health IQ by a point or two, please go ahead and subscribe and give the exam room podcast a five-star rating on Apple podcast and wherever it is that you get your shows. Because every new subscription makes it easier for our friends to find this potentially life-saving information when they need it the most. It really does get us a little bit higher in the rankings, and Apple rewards us by listing those shows closer to the top. And voila, that potentially life-changing information is right at their fingertips. And people need it now more than ever as they are trying to take charge of their health in this new year. So let's help them out with that subscription and five-star rating. And I want to thank you in advance. I also want to say thank you once again to the Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund for making today's episode of The Exam Room possible. Greg Ryder's love for animals was unrivaled. And today, the fund in his honor is dedicated to supporting organizations like the Physicians Committee that share that same passion, that same love that he had. They're doing it through animal rescue efforts and by promoting a vegan lifestyle, even wildlife conservation, so many great ways. Visit them online, gregoryriderfund.org. That's Gregory Ryder, spelled R-E-I-T-E-R fund.org. And you can learn more about Greg's story while you're there, as well as the animal issues that they are currently working on. 
Plus, while you're there, you can sign up for their newsletter so you can keep up with all of the good work that they are doing. And a link to do that right now can be found in the show notes. For today, that is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you once again to Dr. Neil Barnard for joining us and kicking off our first of 52 live Q&As in 2022. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based.